Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Hey, Jean. Yeah. How was your Easter? How many Easter eggs did you get? Well, actually, we had Christmas cake for Easter instead of Easter eggs. You savage. Why would you do that? Because, you know, we didn't want to go to the supermarket and get Easter eggs because, really, are they an essential item? And my mum makes... The Prime Minister said, the Prime Minister said that the Easter bunny is an essential worker. Therefore, I would have thought that the eggs are essential, clearly. As if the Easter bunny gets Easter eggs from the supermarket. Come on. My mum makes a delicious Christmas cake. We had some in the freezer left over from Christmas time. Special treat for Easter. Boom. Boom. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday the 14th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We're into the fourth week of this podcast where we bring you the main stories plus a few of the oddball things we see in coronavirus land. Hey, straight off today, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, there's been a lot of deaths announced over the weekend. It really is a a sombre reminder of why we're in lockdown in the first place, isn't it? In more positive news, the number of new cases in the past 24 hours was 17 at the the 1pm press conference today. It's the lowest increase since we went into lockdown. There is still madness afoot though, I'm afraid. The idiotic international mission to damage phone cell towers because of the non-existent dangers of 5G and its alleged connection to COVID-19 continue. Remember there were a bunch of cell tower arsons in the UK last week and just like Michael Joseph Savage said of Britain and New Zealand during the Second World War, where she goes, we go. So yeah, it seems some numpty in Auckland has set a wee fire at the base of a half-built 5G tower. The best response I've seen so far to all this was an opinion piece from Marina Hyde in the UK Guardian. She points out the cell phones are really handy for emergency communications in the current crisis and says, great job guys, it's the equivalent of destroying air raid sirens during the Blitz because you heard they turn you Nazi. Today, we finally got to the bottom of something that's been the subject of much conjecture and online speculation. Since last week, the Ministry of Health has been talking about a mystery cluster of 35 cases, but it wouldn't give any details apart from saying it was a private function. This sent people into overdrive. You know, was it a swingers club? Was it some secret meeting of politicians? Today, finally, Ashley Bloomfield let slip. It's a stag do. I don't know whether to be relieved or disappointed, really. Later on, we speak with Katrina Ferguson from the Publishers Association about what you can read during the lockdown, how to get your hands on books in the first place, and how will the book industry weather the storm. But first, what's happened today? Yeah, as we alluded to at the top, New Zealand's coronavirus death toll now stands at nine. So since Friday, eight people have died, all of them elderly and most associated with rest homes. Ashley Bloomfield has ordered a review of aged care facilities and how they've been handling the outbreak and says there will be more funding for the sector. A group of health and economic academics released what they call Plan B, appealing to the government to return to the equivalent of a level two and soon. But other scientists have pushed back, saying the gains under level four will be lost if we follow the plan and tens of thousands of lives could be lost. You know, whichever way things play out, the economy has taken a significant whack. Treasury released some modelling today. The best case scenario would have unemployment peak just below 10% and a reduction of GDP by 11.5%. And that's the best case. Yeah, so everyone is having to come up with ways to ride out whatever wave is coming towards them or scramble for a life raft. And that includes councils around the country, none more so than in Auckland, the biggest council in the country, where councillors have been locked in a closed-door meeting today. Yeah, so to find out a bit more, we caught up with Stuff senior journalist Todd Nile. So Todd, thanks for joining us. So there's a behind-closed-doors meeting 
for the Auckland Council today and another one on Thursday. What's up for discussion? This won't be the big rates debate for the year. That's probably going to be next month. But what the council management have been working on is several scenarios that it will present to councillors as to what the financial picture is going to look like in the upcoming rating year, which starts in the 1st of July. And it's basically how big a hit has Auckland Council finances taken and likely to take under various scenarios due to COVID-19. Remembering that rates are only about a half of what Auckland Council lives off. It has dividends from Auckland Airport, it has the regional fuel tax. So half of its budget is probably already seriously in trouble before they get to looking at how they deal with rates. Um, It's a big shareholder in Auckland Airport, it would have expected about $58 million in dividends this year. That's probably down to zero. It has the regional fuel tax, which no other council has, which brings in about $156 million a year. If you imagine that's down 10, 20%, say, then that's another 15 to $30 million that it hasn't got coming in. Public transport revenue will be down sharply. So there's some huge hits, I don't know, maybe the equivalent of an 8 or 9% rate cut before they even get to the discussion about what can we do with rates. And is there any discussion or any talk that you're hearing about what they should do with the rates? There, so there, there was that push by the taxpayers' union, bless them, for councils, for councils around the country to freeze rates this year. I don't think that got much traction amongst Auckland councillors, but there were some over the past week or two who were starting to feel that maybe something should be done to take the heat off rate payers, whether that is a lower rate rise than the proposed 3.5%, already possibly the lowest rate rise in the country proposed for this year, um, or whether it's some kind of deferred uh, schemes like some other cities are doing, like give a break to some commercial rate payers, give people longer to pay their bills. But no, there's not been a clear public debate of, well, instead of 3.5, let's have 2% or something like that. That's all very well, but a lot of people around the country really struggle to care about the fate of Aucklanders. Why does it matter to the whole country what happens to Auckland, but also what's happening around the rest of the country in terms of local rates and so on? Well, Auckland's a huge part of the country's economy, whether you like its council or not, it's another thing. Um, it's it's more than a third of the country's GDP. And so things for the economy to function well in Auckland, it needs things like a good roading network, good public transport, um, good good infrastructure like the port and the airport. So it is important for the country. When you look at what other local bodies are up to around the country, Wellington City Council, for example, had been looking at a rates rise of 9.2% before the world changed last month. That's clearly coming down and Wellington's already looking at things like giving people, you know, a six-month delay on having to pay the next uh, quarterly rate bill that is coming up. Similar idea also being looked at in Christchurch City, where they're actually looking at trying to freeze rates. But the thing to remember when you look around the country and compare it to Auckland is a lot of the other big councils are city councils, whereas Auckland is a combination of a regional council and a city council. So, for example, Wellington and Christchurch City Councils don't have to deal with the significant investment uh, and the financial burden of public transport, and most of the environmental functions are also regional councils' ones. So, Todd, before you go, 
You were witness to a dramatic rescue last week. Can you tell us about that? I start my day with a level four compliant bike ride that starts at my property and just goes around the the rural kind of back block that I live on. So I went around one corner and there was a fire engine down the road and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'd just make a slight detour and go down there. I got down there. Everyone was looking up from where the fire engine was. I looked up too. Luckily, I was traveling slowly and there is a cockatoo hanging upside down from a power line. Uh, I'd got there at just the right moment. The, the fire service was there. Vector, the lines company, was there. And within about five or ten minutes, with the help of Long Pole, they got this um, cockatoo uh, off the line. It, it looked like something out of a Monty Python sketch, to be honest. <laughs> but he wasn't just any cockatoo, was he? It was not just any cockatoo. It was Fonzie the cockatoo, it turned out to be, who has a following of some 10,000 on Instagram. Well, before the rescue, uh, it's possibly much higher than that now. And Fonzie was a sort of three-and-a-half-year-old pet, didn't have the the power of flight, and had been living at this uh, rural property, just hopping around the place, you know, spending its day in a tree. What had happened on this occasion was somebody started a lawnmower a bit too close to Fonzie. He'd got a fright and in a burst of adrenaline had managed to flap his way up onto the power line, clenched uh, his claws around the power line, but not enough to hold him in place. And he swung upside down and hung there for 20 hours. There we go. Level four is getting us all in a flap in various ways, but um, good to hear that there was a safe ending for Fonzie. Ruffling feathers. Thank you, Todd. Badumch. The job market's changing, huh? Almost by the hour. You know, unemployment's spiking, but also there's been some gobsmacking individual data points. Like, did you hear about Countdown saying they've had airline pilots rocking up and applying for jobs, stacking shelves? I guess supermarkets are one place where there, you know, there's not going to be any job losses in the near future. Countdown told RNZ that 25,000 people applied for 2,000 jobs in the past month. You know, in New Zealand, sort of everywhere in the COVID story, it's like they turned up for the, the auditions and said, I, I'll take all the parts, thanks. I mean, they're obviously a victim, you know, one of the very first businesses to get it in the neck as air traffic shut down. And, you know, it's been a, a patriotic hero for its part in bringing Kiwis home from various places on Mercy flights. But it's also been a pretty important villain, too, if that's the right word. I mean... This obviously isn't the airline's fault as such, but the fact is the original New Zealand COVID cases came from abroad, all came from abroad, uh, and mostly on planes, and dozens of those early cases arrived on Air New Zealand flights. Yeah, and according to reports uh, about the Bluff wedding cluster, it seems that it seems possible at least that patient zero in that case was an Air New Zealand flight attendant. There's a really good stuff piece by John Anthony from the weekend where he steps through the body blows that Air New Zealand has taken in the past few months. He points out this year is the airline's 80th anniversary, so it was meant to be a year of celebration and reflection, I guess. And Instead, they were hit by what an aviation consultant that John talks to calls the biggest, meanest, ugliest black swan ever. The silver lining, I guess, is that a country needs an airline, so it seems impossible that the government will let the company totally fail. Uh, even if there are some pretty dark times ahead. And for their employees, of course, as well. So New Zealand is the bridge between us and the world, isn't it? And, you know, what strange stuff there is going on around the world. Let's start in Israel. So in Israel, there are 10,000-odd cases and about 100 deaths. And there's a story that the New York Times has done where they point out, you know, when Israel's health minister was found to be infected with the coronavirus early this month, Basically, all the officials who'd been in close contact with him were quarantined. And there was one who stood out, the director of Mossad. So 
which immediately had Israelis going, what? Why was the director of Mossad with the Minister of Health? It's a bit like hearing that the KGB or the CIA have started to negotiate about providing a primary health care or something. Yeah, so it, it turns out that the Mossad had been involved, you know, in turn their skills, I guess, to acquiring medical equipment and manufacturing technology abroad. I guess, you know, you got the contacts, you use them, but it's not very James Bond, is it? You know, heading out on shopping expeditions for PPE and hopefully leaving the poison-tipped umbrella at home. Meanwhile, there's the US where yesterday, just catching up on the numbers, 524,000 cases and 20,444 deaths. Yeah, the US remains kind of horrifying, not just because of the disease, but because of the chaos in their national response and the disconnection between the national response and what's happening state by state. In particular, there's been this extraordinary piece in the New York Times where they've shown once again that when they throw, you know, 500 journalists at a story, they can get these unbelievably detailed stories full of emails and on and off the record quotes from absolutely everybody in the story. The gist of it is that Trump was receiving very clear, very loud warnings about really serious death tolls and uh, economic outcomes way, 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 way back. Back when he was saying all the stuff about it'll, it'll blow through by April and you know it'll go away in the summer sh- sunshine. Again, just the, the way the New York Times seems to actually get everybody's emails and so on. And there's one in particular from this guy James Lawler, who's a uh, infectious disease specialist. And at one point he's talking about the fact that they'd planned for these things, they'd planned for a pandemic, and then he says they didn't do any of the things they'd planned to do. We have thrown 15 years of institutional learning out the window and are making decisions based on intuition. Pilots can tell you what happens when a crew makes decisions based on intuition rather than what their instruments are telling them. And we continue to push the stick forward. And then the the, the latest news of this, of course, a few days on, is that the US Public Health Supremo, Anthony Fauci, was reckless enough to say on, in an interview with CNN that the New York Times story was you know, essentially true. And this annoyed Trump so much that he then retweeted a tweet calling for Fauci to be fired. And so the, the cycle of chaos continues. Australia, where the numbers are 6,300 cases and about 60 deaths. So Australians have taken to dressing up to take their bins out. It's all there on a Facebook page called Bin Isolation Outing. I can currently see uh, women in pearls, blokes with shirts and ties, a Superman shirt, pyjamas, the mum from The Incredibles. Well, she's particularly impressive. The uh, the woman in question there is standing about five metres from her bin, and I don't know what she's used, but she's got some kind of rubbery black thing which looks a bit like an arm, so she's stretchy like the original one in the cartoon. Fancy. Uh, meanwhile, they've been dressing up in Indonesia too. Just the horrible numbers first, 4,241 cases, 373 deaths, according to WHO figures from yesterday. But anyway, according to Reuters, there's a village on Java in Indonesia where health system volunteers have been dressing up as ghosts to try and scare people into social distancing, which seems legit. We've had public health campaigns involving ghosts in New Zealand before, haven't we? Ghost chips. Ghost Ghost chips chips and all that. So according to this piece, in Indonesian folklore, ghostly figures known as pokong, hope I've said that right, are said to represent the trapped souls of the dead. According to Reuters news agency staff who travelled to see the pokong in action, the tactic at the outset had completely the opposite effect from that intended because people came out to see if they could spot the volunteers dressed up as ghosts. So, yeah, don't try this at home, folks. Email inbox.
That's the sound, of course, of Bob Marley, Three Little Birds. It came to us via Rachel Ray from Geneva in Switzerland, where they've been in lockdown for three weeks. Rachel emailed us to let us know what's been going on there. Remember, you too can email us, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you're overseas, just record a little voice memo, a minute or two, just let us know who you are, where you are, and how's it going for you. Anyway, Rachel says that each night at 9pm, the whole country goes out on their balconies and applauds essential workers, and she recorded a bit of it for us. I reckon I can hear the distinctly Swiss sound of cowbells in there. Or the Waikato. Could be just in Hamilton. I haven't yet heard any people bashing their plates at 9pm from Hamilton, but this still could come. Um, Yeah, so Rachel in her email says that each day after the 9pm clapping is done, someone somewhere else in the neighbourhood has been playing their own plague playlist. Uh, She says, um, it's at first it was uplifting songs, Stand By Me, I Can See Clearly Now, We Are Family, and of course the Bob Marley tune we played you earlier, Three Little Birds. But now, Rachel says, they've moved on to bangers, so they've been playing YMCA, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and Eye of the Tiger, which as Rachel points out, doesn't seem entirely appropriate. There, there's the lyric, the last survivor stalks his prey in the night. So, hmm. We also had a lot of feedback about the interview with the Prime Minister, which we put out on Friday. Uh, plenty of people saying they admire the approach she's taking, others questioning whether New Zealand has gone too hard. And this from Kate Sutherland. I just had to drop you a line to say I loved the interview with Jacinda, but I felt your pain. The connection dropped out about six times and I had to restart it and find my place again. The joys of overloaded internet. I'm disheartened. You know, I think it's really nice that in these troubled times, people are even feeling empathy for journalists, of all people, including those of us who managed to mess up interviews with the Prime Minister thanks to dodgy internet connections and even dodgier segues. Here's a segue. It's time for the Pandemic Playlist. Smooth. And we are, to be frank, drowning in possibilities. We've already had the Bob Marley cowbells extravaganza from Geneva. Uh, We could play a bit of the Andrea... Bocelli live YouTube concert. That one was viewed by 20 million odd people. Maybe we'll come back to that, actually. There have also been all sorts of parody versions of of great and terrible songs, including quite a good one of The Love Boat. But the standout over the weekend really has to be the reworking of Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music. And that's from Shirley Serbin, who's principal of Lake Brunner School on the West Coast. When I checked earlier today on the YouTube, she's posted of it where she sings a version of Do Re Mi with tailor-made COVID-19 lyrics superimposed with the original video from the movie. Uh, it had 8 million views. It's gone round the world. Not bad. Not bad. Do not fear, but please stay here. Stay at home now, everyone. We must wash and clean things well. Cars, no long trips, just for fun. There was a stuffed piece about it over the weekend, and she said that she'd had to respond to some intelligent and some slightly sillier Facebook comments. One commenter apparently was concerned in the video about the Von Trapp family's lack of social distancing. Shirley told stuff she couldn't quite be bothered telling them that the video was actually made in 1965. So here's something a bit special. Eugene and I have been making Coronavirus NZ for three weeks, and apart from the very, very first day when Eugene came over to mine, we've been making it from our respective bedroom studios 30 kilometres apart, and all our interviews have been done over the phone or WhatsApp or FaceTime or Messenger or Zoom or whatever. But today, on day 20 of the lockdown, I hope I've got that number right, we have an actual in-person interview in the flesh with an actual person in the actual same room as me. Not me, though. 
I'm still away. Well, yes, you're still far, far away mm. safely in your bubble. Hi, guys. But anyway, so look, this person in the room with me is Katrina Ferguson. Katrina is director of the Publishers Association of New Zealand, also called PANS. She also used to run the New Zealand Book Council, though that's now called Read NZ. And she knows a great deal about books. I also happen to know that she's got several thousand books in boxes in her garage that she still hasn't unpacked from when she moved to New Zealand from the UK in 2002, despite having moved house twice since arriving. And I know this because I happen to be married to her. So there's been a lot of talk about the importance of Netflix and Neon and Amazon Prime and Disney and all the other streaming services getting us through the lockdown. But just as important in maintaining our collective sanity, of course, have been books. So Katrina Ferguson, director of PANS, etc. The bookshops are shut. The libraries are shut. It's probably against the law to hand a book over the fence to your neighbour. So what's happening to the book industry and how are we readers getting our book fix? As you say, things are a little bit difficult in terms of getting your hands on books at the moment. And I would say that the book industry is undoubtedly hurting. As you mentioned, books can't be sold um, either through publishers directly online or through bookshops, which does make it really difficult to get them into the hands of readers. But the industry is used to change and with every disruption, there have always been comments about the end of books um, and every time books have adapted and have bounced back. And I think that what we are seeing is that there's still a real appetite for books and for reading. Library use is up. Obviously, you can still download online ebooks from the libraries um, and people are using those library resources for all sorts of things. Librarians are reading online to children and they're reporting that there's some really interesting and great activities coming through, which people seem to be really enjoying. And in the week before lockdown, booksellers experienced really strong sales, particularly fiction and children's books, and they exceeded the average weekly sales in November in the lead up to Christmas. So clearly people were stocking up on their books as well as their toilet roll. Okay, so that's that's going to last for a little while, the, the I guess the cash bump that booksellers and publishers have got out of that. But how how's it looking for publishers in the medium term? Well, I think everybody is really looking towards that time when book sales can kick off again. And so booksellers and publishers are working together on a few kind of initiatives to find ways to keep books visible um, and in the media. And there's some campaigns which are being rolled out. One is... If you go to the Coalition for Books website, coalitionforbooks.nz. So they've got a project called First Chapters, um, and that features the first chapters of books that would have been published during this period, which people now can't get hold of. So there's books by Nikki Pellegrino, by Kevin Ireland, Donovan Bixley, um, and Kelvin Cruikshank, if you want to see a little bit into the future. So does his book tell us a little bit about the coming COVID-19 crisis? I imagine he would have had the jump on the rest of us. Undoubtedly. If you go and download that first chapter, you'll be able to find that out. And then there are other websites that are selling books online as well. Um, mebooks.co.nz, for example. You can go there and get also, get hold of all sorts of books. So there's, there's definitely still a way of getting hold of things. Um, it's just a little bit trickier than it was. How come they're able to sell? I didn't think that books were an essential industry at this point. No, they aren't. But those are e-books. Can we just go step back a bit, Katrina, and maybe just explain to people why is it good to read, especially now? There's been a lot of research, particularly around reading for pleasure. So essentially kind of fiction and poetry. Um, 
on the benefits of reading and all the good stuff that comes with it. So there's obviously some really strong educational benefits for children um, and that also supports their personal development as well as obvious impacts on academic success. Um, but reading has also been shown to increase empathy, uh, something which we could all do with a bit of at the moment. Um, and there's also some really interesting studies that have really uh, demonstrated that reading can ease tension, it can slow your heart rate, reduce stress, um, and apparently it's 300% better at reducing stress than going for a walk and 700% more effective than playing video games. So there's plenty of reading going on, but what about writers? You know, this is a class of individual who quite often are introverts who actually like being locked up in a house alone for extended periods, quite happy to go without human contact, used to working in their pyjamas, all those things that the rest of us are, are getting used to. I think for writers, it's a really mixed situation. Um, as you say, they are used to working at home. They're used to being in front of their computers. But I think there's a lot of worry and concern um, around what they're doing at the moment. Obviously, there's issues with um, publication dates for those writers that had books that were coming out. Um, the cancellation of the Auckland Writers' Festival and some of the other festivals around New Zealand has had a really big impact on their ability to promote their books. Um, and they also really help with book sales. So there's definitely concern. Um, there's also some question marks over a platform for promoting their books in the future with uh, Bauer closing. So magazines like The Listener and like uh, North and South really did um, celebrate books. So there's concern about that. Um, but at the same time, writers are a resilient lot. They're used to working in reasonably difficult situations. They are kind of you know, running online workshops, they're doing what they can to um, keep themselves sane. There's lots of kind of groups that have sprung up on Twitter for support. The online writing competitions are still happening. Uh, Tracy Slaughter just won the Bath International Flash Fiction competition. What's Flash Fiction? Uh, so flash fiction is like really, really short fiction, usually between 1,500 and 2,000 words. Uh, really good for this time, actually, when it can be hard to focus and concentrate. So definitely worth having a look, doing a quick Google on flash fiction. And if you're having problems concentrating, there can be a really, that's a really nice way to dip in and out of some really short stories. I heard a really interesting thing on the New York Times podcast where they were hearing from the writer George Saunders. He's a, a writer of some note and he's also a university creative writing tutor. And he'd written to all his students saying, yes, this is tough. And of course, this is in the US where things are, are much grimmer in a, a death and mayhem sort of way. He's saying, this is tough. Hope you're doing okay. But remember, writers actually have a special role, which is to record and note things. And he's not talking about in a journalistic sense. He's saying, you know, there's the stuff you're going to write after this is over, which is informed by this in the way that, you know, many great tragedies can lead to great art and all that sort of thing. So he's saying, keep a diary, keep your eyes open. Your job is actually underway right now, which I thought was a really interesting take on the role of the writer in a, in a time of crisis. Yeah, that's right. I mean, writers have always commented on the times that we're living in. Um, there was somebody joking on Twitter about how everybody was going to have to go back and rewrite their novels, though, that they were halfway through because it needed to kind of reference COVID-19 somewhere. And I think that 
it is really true that it's going to give a bit of a focus for writers, similar to, I suppose, the way that Fiona Farrell did a lot of writing about Christchurch after the earthquakes, um, really made some beautiful commentary on it and put a lot of what had happened into context in an accessible way for people. In fact, could there be a flow of creativity out of this? You know, people have talked about Shakespeare after the, the plague. What do you, what do you think? So the rumour is that in 1606, when the Globe in London was closed down, that gave Shakespeare some time to go off and do some writing. And the theory is that King Lear was written during this time. I don't think anybody can definitively say whether it was a response specifically to the plague, but it definitely features lots of references to plague and pestilence. These kind of really difficult times do lead people to find new ways to being creative and doing things in an innovative fashion. I mean, I think it's um, the Arts Foundation that have got uh, developing their boosted platform to create ways for artists and performers, including poets and writers, uh, to present their work through a paying platform because it's all very well giving things away for free at the moment, but there does come a time where writers do need to be able to make a living so you can do some promotion for now, but ultimately the goal is to try and generate some income. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what does come out of this. So what's on your pandemic reading list? So when we went into lockdown, I was reading A Mistake by Carl Schuker, who's a Wellington writer, and this has been shortlisted for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. And that's a rather dark look at what goes on within medical institutions. Uh, not pandemic related, but medical enough to kind of set my nerves on edge a little bit, although it is a really amazing book. Uh, so when I finished that, I picked up Grown Ups by Marion Keys, which is at the other end of the spectrum and is about as light and frivolous and chirpy as you can possibly get. And I have to say, it's been a rather marvellous distraction. Katrina Ferguson, thank you very, very much for joining us. Well, joining Adam and me online. <laughs> thank you for having me. In payment, I'll make a cup of tea later. Okay. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday, the 14th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Todd Nile, Katrina Ferguson, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all the usual podcast apps, plus at the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. And don't forget, you can contact us via our email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Ciao.